We're going to be reading and, and studying all the way through uh, chapter, uh, verse 26 of chapter 11. One of my favorite uh, preachers to listen to uh, is a senior pastor named uh, Tabiti Anuebli. Tabiti Anuebli uh, <clears throat> is a pastor of Anacostia River Church in southeast uh, Washington, D.C. area. And he actually, Sandy Wilson, years ago, I remember how many years ago, uh, invited uh, Tabiti to come speak. I think it was at our Christian Life Conference. And that's the first time I got to meet him and hear him. Um, he is a, a, a great leader. He's a great pastor. And he just has a great voice and a great way of opening uh, God's Word. He is a, uh, not only senior pastor of that church, but he is a, a co, uh, co-council member on the Gospel Coalition Council with both Sandy Wilson and George Robertson. And I was listening to Tabiti to, to preach uh, on uh, passages in Genesis several weeks ago. And he said this, and it, and it just arrested my thinking, because especially as we approach the text today, but it seems like as we approach the text every day or every, every week, uh, Tabiti said this. He said, how much of Genesis is really just God speaking to us about our rebellious hearts? And I was like, that's exactly true. Now, of course, we see that and we think to ourselves, yes, you look at some of the characters here in Genesis and you say, these guys, they just didn't get it. God would bless them and then they would rebel. God would bless them and then they would wander away. And in some cases, you, you even think, Gosh, I, yeah, I can see how a guy could get evil like Lamech or something, but I don't know if that's quite me. I don't know if I'm quite that guy. And yet the reality is we are that guy. Um, I, where I sit now on Sunday morning, I kind of moved where I used to sit on Sunday morning, sit in a different place uh, for worship. And in that place, we just happen to have a lot of young families around us. And uh, it's, it's fun for me to watch, maybe because I don't have young kids anymore, these young dads and moms try to wrestle their kids in the pew, try to just get them to just sit still, face forward, be quiet. <clears throat> and I do have great compassion for them. In fact, I saw a friend of mine who has three kids all under the age of six. Uh, they, I watched them get out of the car on Sunday morning. I watched them come in and sit in the coffee bar area. And I think they were kind of regrouping before they went into the sanctuary. And uh, I went up to them and I said this, and I really meant this. I said, hey, I just want you to know that every time I see you come to worship on Sunday morning, you encourage me in the Lord. And they kind of looked at me like, what do you mean by that? And I said, because of this, because I know it took you 10 times more work and effort to get to church this morning than it took me. <laughs> so when I see you walk in with your kids, knowing the effort it took for you to be here, I think, wow, if they can love Jesus like that, then you know what? I can get my tail out of bed and love Jesus. I said, so thank you. Thank you for uh, inspiring me like that. But it, you wrestle with these kids in the pew. Why? Because it is the nature of our hearts to do what we should not do. <laughs> That's how we're, we're born. We are born sinners. Um, I have three kids, and now they're all grown. But, you know, when my boys were little, I might put them in a chair, and I'd say, hey, listen, I need you to stay here. Don't get out of the chair. If you get out of the chair, you're going to get a spanking. Do you understand that? Yes, Daddy, I understand that. Okay, so you sit in the chair. I'm going to go in here, and I'm going to come back. You need to stay here. Do you understand? If you get out of the chair, you're going to spank you. Yes, Daddy, I understand that. You know, and I'll go up maybe 10 feet, and they hop out of the chair. And you're like, wait, put them back in the chair. Okay, hey, do you understand? I do, I understand. And you're like, 
what in the world? And then again, you know, then they're 15, right? And you're like, it's now it's not, I need you to stay there. It's like, no, I need you to get up, right? <laughs> I need you to, to, to move from that, right? So I go in and I say, hey, Liz, why aren't you up? Why are you still in the bed? Oh, I'm tired. I'm going to get up. I promise. Listen, you need to get up or, and I can't spank him anymore. You need to get up or you're going to be grounded. I get it. All right. It's fine. You know, I'm going to get up and I, I'm going to go, I'm going to go take a shower. And when I come out, you need to have gotten up and I go take a shower and I come in, walk in the room. It's not even that they're just not out of the bed. They're asleep. And I said, what are you doing? Oh, I fell asleep. Well, of course you fell asleep. You were in the bed. You need to get up. Why is that? It, that's who we are. That's our propensity is to, is, to, uh, is to be what we ought not to be. Either to, to move when we shouldn't move or to not move when we should. And I think it's important for us to keep that before our eyes as we look anywhere in Scripture. George often talks, uh, we often talk about it on staff, George says, you know, we got to think about Scripture in terms of knowing, being, and doing. And last week when he spoke to you, he said, listen, when we, when we look at Scripture, we understand something about God, we understand something about us, and we understand how we need to respond to what God has done and who He is. It's knowing, being, doing. And one of the dangers that can happen often, especially in intense and deep and hardworking Bible studies like this, is that we can be knowing, but not being and doing. So we need to take the scripture that we're learning and we need to be prayerful and meditating on what does it mean about us? Who, who are we in response to what we've learned? And then we need to have action steps. Now those action steps are different for each of us. Um, there's some similarities <clears throat> because there's some similarities in the way that we, uh, that we struggle with sin. But there's also things that are unique to each one of us. And so even today, we need to be thinking about knowing being and doing. Um, and as we read the scripture this morning, and as we, as we see what God has to say to us, we also need to understand um, the, three, uh, the three lenses in which we look at something like Genesis. Because if we're going to know it correctly, and we're going to eventually get to doing, we've got to know this. First of all, we look at, at chapters 10 and 11, and we want to understand what did these historical events mean for the people who were actually there. So that's one lens. What does it mean for those who were actually there? As God interacted with them there, what did, what, was that, what did that mean? The other lens we need to look at is, what did it mean for the first readers of the book of Genesis? So Moses wrote this for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. So what did it mean for them? Because Moses clearly has crafted these, uh, these chapters, these, these words, in a very specific way. For instance, this, this morning you're going to notice that Genesis 10 is this kind of big global picture of how from the point of Noah and his sons, the, the whole earth begins to be filled out with peoples, nations, and languages. And then you're going to get to chapter 11, and it's going to seem, seem like, wait, what's going on? Because it's not in chronological order. Actually, you have the big picture in, in Genesis 10. And then in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, he's, gonna, he's going to actually take us back in time and tell us why is it that all these nations have been spread out. And he's going to give us that, that moment, that place in which 
God's, I mean, which people were rebelling against God, and, and how is it that, that they ended up in chapter 10 being dispersed? And then in the verses that follow, verses 10 through 26, he's going to even zero down a little bit more on the specific line of Shem and how it leads to Abraham. And in knowing that specific way in which Moses is writing this, in fact, if we could all, if, we, if any of us, if we had aptitude in Hebrew and we were to read this in Hebrew, you would see the intentionality of the words. There's alliteration that takes place in there. There's rhyming that takes place in there. The structures, the things are repeated. Um, George talked to you last week about a chiastic structure, how there's mirroring. That takes place here too. So all those things are very intentional. So we've got to know what did it, we've got to see it through the lens of what did it mean for those first readers. And then the third lens, we've got to see it for what does it mean for us? What is the universal applications for us? And in that way, we get from knowing to being to doing. Now, what I want to do this morning, because um, we're going to have two genealogies uh, uh, on either side of verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, I'm going to read part of the genealogy that I think is helpful for us to get the rhythm of it on one part. I'm going to read part of the genealogy on the other. And I'm, going to, I'm going to read all of verses 1 through 9 of chapter 11. But I'll let you know where I am as I'm reading along so that we can follow this together. Let's, uh, let's look together at, at Genesis 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, and now he's going to go through all of those, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. And then he goes on and explains some more. Drop down to verse 5. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. And then he goes to Ham, verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Cana. And then he goes on and talks about the sons of Cush. And then in verse 8, he says this, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erek, Akkad, Kelna, in the land of Shinar. Now jump down to verse 15, still speaking about, uh, about the, uh, the line of Ham. It says, Canaan fathered Sidon, the firstborn, and Heth. And then it speaks about the peoples that came out of him, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, the Hamathites, and afterward, the clan of the Canaanites dispersed. I just wanted to read all those ites because it's really fun. And then verse 19. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, now he's wrapping it up, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now he goes to the third son, Shem. Verse 21. To Shem also the father of all of the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, Aram, and then to verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. Peleg means divided. And his brother's name was Jotkin. Now to verse 30. The territory in which they live extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. 
These are the sons of Shem. He's wrapping it up. By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to the genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The whole earth had one language and same words. Now he's going to go back and tell you why all this happened. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. This is, the only, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And now it's going to zero in on the descendants of Shem leading to Abram. And I'm just going to read every other verse. These, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old. He fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. Verse 12, when Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. Verse 14, when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Eber actually is Hebrew, where we get Hebrew from. Verse 16, when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. Verse 18, when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. Verse 20, when Rehu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sirug. Verse 22, when Sirug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. Verse 24, when Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now as we look at that this morning, I want us to, to see it really in those three parts. Uh, first of all, I want us to see in chapter 10, verses 1 through 32, the table of nations. Um, I didn't come up with that. That's what this is called, the table of nations. It's been called this for a long time. It's to give us this picture of what God had done uh, uh, from the point of Noah to fill out the whole earth. And then, of course, leading into the focus in on Shem and his line and Abram and, and from there on out the rest of Genesis. But here we have, all, you know, from Adam, uh, all of created humanity and then the condemnation through the flood, the judgment through the flood, and then Noah uh, being the one who is now going to, to redo what God intended and now it's going to go out from there. There's 70 nations, 70 uh, uh, people or nationalities listed here. Why 70? Was that the total amount? No, it meant completeness. Seventy was used as a term to say, okay, this is, this is to give us the big picture. This is the, the whole picture. It's not detailed, but it was specific in what Moses was trying to communicate. It's actually interesting to note that, uh, and we're not sure, but it, you wonder about this. When Jesus sent out the disciples in the gospel, how many did he send out? Seventy. Sent out 70 disciples uh, to go out to the different cities. Um, showing the completeness of going out to the entire world. Well, there's three things I want us to see here, uh, to notice here in chapter 10. 
And I've listed them here for you. First of all, the first word, united. In verse 1, it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. I think it's important for us to remember that we as God's created humanity are united to each other in two very significant ways. Every human being who has ever been born, every human being who is living right now, we are united in two very significant ways. We are united in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Every single created human being has the stamp, the image of God placed upon them. But we are also united, as we see in, here in verse 1, we are also united by blood. We all have the same family tree. We all come from Adam through Noah. We're all part of that same family. There ultimately isn't a bunch of different races that develop from different places on their own originating in those places. Now, we have a tendency, all of us, all of every, everyone everywhere throughout history, we have a tendency to focus on our differences. We have a tendency to divide over our differences. We have a tendency to rank each other over our differences. Whether that's skin color, whether that's culture, um, whether that's affinities. And, and it's our nature to, to, to divide up into just our, what we perceive as our own little tribes and to actually see the differences of us. When the reality is, as the Bible teaches us, the similarities that we have with all of created humanity are massive compared to the differences. And I think that has significant implications for us. And I would say that the most significant is this, that how we see and treat each other who seem to be different. I think that's so important for us. I know that I, I really, honestly, since, and George talked about this this last week, that since the, the 16, 1700s, particularly because, frankly, because the British won so many colonial battles. I mean, why is English everywhere? Because the British just won the battles. If they had lost some of the battles and some other world power had won the battles in the 16, 1700s, we probably would have a different approach to this. But all of a sudden, Western Europe began to control, for us, all thought, not realizing, and there's whole other, you know, the Ottoman Empire, the Chinese Empire, whole other parts of the world that think completely different than us. And as a result of that, there began this, this attitude among people like us to just assume a superiority of language, of culture, and then sadly to even connect it to skin color. And I think we need to see again this morning this, this very important fact that not only are we all as God's created humanity share that same image of God, but we're all part of the same family tree. We, we, we share a whole lot more DNA with each other than any of the differences that we see in each other. United. The second thing I want us to see this morning in, uh, in that table of nations in chapter 10, and I put it there, is dispersed. They were dispersed through the whole earth. In, in verses 5 and verses 20 and verses 31, you see the same statement made. Um, look at verse 5. It says, They spread out in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. And it says the same thing. 
um, by their clans, language, nations, by their clans, language, nations, in verses 20 and 31. Uh, why is this important? Why is, it, why is uh, what going on, what's going on in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, why is that a problem? And why is it that the Lord disperses them? Now, the, the judgment that takes place in, in chapter 11, the judgment is not that God disperses them. The judgment God renders on them the, the, is that he confuses their language. His, his design, his plan was always that they be dispersed. How do we know that? Because remember the cultural mandate in chapter 1, Genesis 1, verses, uh, verse 28, when God says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So God has created this world, he's created this world as a, as a habitat for his glory, as a testament to his glory. And then he's created us, has created humanity to fill out all the earth, to subdue it, to be stewards of it, in order that we might reflect the glory of God. And of course, you know, it leads to the point of where, where they're not reflecting the glory of God, and so the judgment of the flood comes. But then again, in chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1, God says it again to Noah. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And so the dispersion was not, was not the judgment. The dispersion was God's intent. No, you need to, you need to move out. You need to fill the earth. Um, you need to, to reflect the glory. What are the implications for us uh, today in this? Well, I think it's, it's clearly this, that God's glory cannot be contained in one people or one language, or one culture. God's glory cannot be contained in one people, one language, or one culture. As Tim Keller says, if, if God is truly God, then He must, He must both transcend all cultures and at some point offend all cultures. There's no culture, there's no people, there's no language that would have their, their hands around the totality of who God is. So, so, you know, here, whatever the, whatever the blessings, however it is that you and I reflect God's glory in this culture, in this language, in this place, in this country, it's not the, it's not the total package. It's not the total package. God can't, God can't be contained only in our culture. And so, as God's greatness, His glory has to be displayed in, in, in multiple cultures, in multiple languages, in multiple peoples, I too, as I seek to understand God, need to appreciate other people's older cultures, other languages. I need to get a hold of how God's glory is reflected in those other places. I need to expand my thinking to, to understand, in order to, to grow in my understanding of who God is. That's why even we say it all the time. Why, why is it that when we're talking... Uh, through our English Bibles, studying through English Bibles, we'll, we'll say, okay, well, actually, a word is better here, a word is better there. Well, because the English language compared to Hebrew, compared to Greek, is actually a really small language. There's just, frankly, not enough words in English. But in Hebrew, there are a lot more words. In Greek, there are a lot more words. So as we understand God, He was using really large languages. Um, we have a smaller language. It actually helps us to understand multiple cultures. Well, the other thing that I want us to see, the last thing I want us to see in the table of nations is the word appointed. The word appointed. You see over and over again this, this order 
that takes place in, in verses 5 and 20 and 31, wrapped up in verse 32. And if you, again, if you were to read this in the Hebrew, you would see Moses showing specific order to this. There's, a, there's, a, there's an intentionality in what's being... This wasn't random. It wasn't randomly that there were different language clans. It wasn't randomly that they landed in these places. But there was order. Paul picks up on this. If you turn in your Bibles over to Acts chapter 17, these are key verses for us as we understand, as we understand Genesis chapter uh, 10. In Acts chapter 17, remember, Paul is uh, there in Athens, and he's there at the Areopagus, um, and he gives this great apologetic sermon where he starts with this temple of the unknown God and moves them in the midst of all these temples of these other false gods, moves them to proclaim, uh, moves in his thinking to proclaim the truth about the true God. And he says this in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he, that's God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So again, there's a clear, clear indication from Scripture. Listen, we're all part of the same family tree. We are all part of the same family tree. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So what's Paul saying there? He's saying what what Moses is saying through the ordering. Paul's just saying plainly for us, God is the one who, who sets the timing and the boundaries of nations. He's the one that determines that. I think this this became very clear to me back in, I think it was 2003, 2004, uh, I was actually sitting uh, outside, outside this, this uh, school building that was being converted to a church in offices, and it was in Rivna, Ukraine. Now, like most of you here in this room, um, I, I grew up with the tension, the, the geopolitical tension in, in my, my lifetime being between this superpower, the Soviet Union, and the United States, being between the ideology of communism and, and free democracy. And that tension being so great that we all had uh, nuclear missiles pointed at each other, and this, this, this tension of, boy, at any moment, the whole world could come to end because these ideologies are, such, are, are clashing, clashing with each other. And, and in the church, in the church we experienced this great overwhelming sense of how do we get the gospel behind the Iron Curtain? How do we, we were having to smuggle Bibles in, smuggle missionaries in, and prayer meetings, I had plenty of prayer meetings growing up, whether it was, uh, or plenty of times of prayer, whether it was a prayer meeting or times in church, we were praying, Lord, please open up the Iron Curtain, give opportunity for the gospel to go in there. And there was a sense in which we all felt that, that for the rest of our lives, there was going to be this great superpower, the Soviet Union. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a beast of an empire that could never be taken down except by nuclear missiles. And then we watched it taken down <laughs> in literally a matter of months. I mean, if you read the history of the, you know, when the, when the Berlin Wall was finally breached, when they, they finally opened it up, which, which then, like, the whole thing just fell apart, like, in a matter of days. And you actually read, well, how did that happen? Why, what, what, how did that even take place? 
you actually realized it was a, it was a, it was a mistake. There was a, there was a government official, official in East Germany who was responsible to speak to the press, and, uh, and they, had this, they had this meeting, and this guy just didn't happen to show up for the meeting. So he knew that they were eventually supposed to open up the Berlin Wall. They had talked about that. But he wasn't at the meeting to realize that they weren't, hadn't decided when. So they were on the news broadcast when they were asking him, the, the, say, when are, when, is it, when are you going to open it up? He didn't know what to answer, so he goes, well, I guess now. And people in the, in the bars and the coffee shops in East Germany said, oh, now? And they just walked out, went to the gate. The guards didn't know what to do because they're watching the news thing. And it opened up, and that was the end. We're thinking nuclear missiles have to take this down, and God's like, I'll take it down whenever I want to. I'll take it down with a guy that doesn't show up at a meeting. And I'm sitting out there uh, in Rivna, Ukraine, and I'm sitting outside this amazing building, and I'm asking our missionary partners who are converting it uh, into a church and a school, I said, wow, did you guys build this? How much did it cost? All that they said, no, actually... Actually, this is a school that was never occupied, but it's, it was a school built for uh, elite uh, military officials and their families. But it was never occupied because the Soviet Union fell, and now we've basically got it given to us for barely nothing, and we're turning it into our, our church and, and this school. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, we're all these prayer meetings that I was in saying, Lord, please let us in. The people there are dying. They're struggling what are they going to do? And I feel like God was kind of saying, well, you know, wait a second, American Christians. Um, I just need this to hang on a little. There's some schools and churches that I need the Soviets to build for me. <laughs> and when those are done, we'll go ahead and move forward. God is in control. God allots the times and the spaces for this. Well, then it goes on in chapter, uh, chapter 11 to this moment. Why, why did this happen? What took place here? It says that they had the same language, the same exact language. Uh, we're not sure whether that means they literally only had one language or that maybe they had many languages, but there was also a lingua franca that, that everybody knew. So while they might have had different dialects of things, like for instance, if you go to sub-Saharan Africa, um, there's tons of different languages there, um, but it seems like a lot of people, a lot of people in different countries, they all know Swahili. Um, so it could have been something like that, like a lingua franca, along with, or it could have just literally been one language. We're not sure, but either way, it doesn't really change the story. And we're not sure whether these people that were there on the Mesopotamian plain near Shinar, we're not quite sure from the text whether it literally was every single human being, uh, now thousands and thousands of people, who have, who have moved away uh, from wherever the ark landed and settled in this Mesopotamian Mesopotamian Valley, or if we're talking just about one significant clan, the clan of Ham, why do I say that? Because this Nimrod guy in chapter 10 seems to get special attention, and you'll notice that Nimrod was the one who was the, the king or, the, or the, the ruler of Babel, so there's a connection there, and Nimrod, his name actually means we shall rebel. So it seems that, that at least Nimrod and and his, the clan of Ham, was there. It could have been all of those thousands of people, or it could have been everyone. But whatever the case, it doesn't change what took place and what God is saying here. And three words I want us to understand in this. First of all, pride. You see in, in verse 2, it says the people migrated east. Now, I'm just going to give you a little clue. Every time you're reading in Genesis and you see anything, anybody going east, 
It's representing this thing. They're moving away from God. They're drifting away from God. Remember that in the Garden of Eden, where did Adam and Eve, where were they sent? They were sent out the east side. There was a guard put on the east side. Cain, after his condemnation from God, after him killing, where did, he goes east. And you're going to see this over and over again. Uh, so that's not just a, it's not just a geographical like, oh yeah, he went east. No, it actually means moving away from God, drifting away from God. So their, their rebellion, and this is just like us, isn't it? Their rebellion doesn't just start with of shaking my fist at God, I'm going to do it my own way. No, their rebellion and our rebellion usually starts with self-reliance and not trusting God anymore. <clears throat> Things go well, we're blessed. We're blessed and we're like, this is great. And then we start to think, gosh, I'm kind of great. I can kind of do this. I'm kind of doing okay. I'm kind of good at this. I mean, this, this can happen week to week. We're, 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 we're encouraged and strengthened by the Lord on a Sunday morning. We wake up Monday morning. We spend time in the Word. We may even write in our prayer journals, Lord, thank you so much for the way you've cared for me. I can see your blessing upon me. I can see how much I need you. And by Friday, we're like, wow, I'm pretty good at life. <laughs> and we didn't intend to be there. We just drifted away. We went east. So it says, first of all, they, they migrated east, this pride. But then the pride turns to rebellion. Verse 4, boy, that's intense, those words. Come, let us build for us a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Why were they doing this? They didn't want to be dispersed. The rebellion was, no, we're going to stay together. This whole thing, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We don't like that. We think that's dangerous. And so we want to stay here. Now, this tower, what was this tower? Tower, when referred to uh, Israelite culture, would have been always a tower of uh, uh, like, a, like, a, like a watchtower, like guarding. But tower in Babylonian culture, which we're talking about here, would have been something uh, that we know as a ziggurat. A ziggurat was this ancient um, temple that was... Kind of like a pyramid, except a pyramid, everything's on the inside. A ziggurat, all the stairs and everything are on the outside. There's nothing on the inside except dirt and there's brick all around it. And the point of a ziggurat, they wouldn't put it on the edge of the city, put it in the middle of the city. And the point of a ziggurat was to, to build a tower on the top of which was basically a house for one of the gods to come down and hang out, sleep, be up there. It wasn't a temple. The temples would be in places around the ziggurat. And if you look at any, if you Google any, you know, uh, pictures of ancient Babylonian cities, you'll see the ziggurats in the middle of the city. So they were, they were building this ziggurat, and in that, you know, you think, well, that's kind of cool. They were trying to make a way for them to communicate with God. That's not what they were doing at all. They were trying to make God be what they wanted Him to be. That's what they were doing. And brothers, that, every... Every deviation from Christianity, every false religion is simply man making God what he wants God to be. And we can do that in our own lives sometimes. We can do that from day to day. Well, I think God is like this. I don't think God is like that. I think God is like this. I think it's always dangerous when you ever hear the words come out of your mouth or one of your friend's mouth saying, well, I think God is like, it kind of doesn't matter what we think God is like. <laughs> It only matters what God has revealed himself. So that's what they were doing. That's their rebellion. And in their rebellion, they're going to make a name for themselves. 
Well, that's our temptation, isn't it? I make a name for myself. I want to, I, I want, I want to gain security in who I am. I want people to, to know who I am. And of course, the disobedience was lest we be dispersed. So we're going to build this tower. We're going to create God in the way we want him to be because we're not, we're not a fan of what he's told us to do. We don't want to do that. We don't want to disperse. We want to stay here. We feel this is better for our survival if we stay here, we build this ziggurat, we worship God the way we want, we make a name for ourselves, and that way we will stay out of danger. A complete distrust of God, a complete disobedience of what God had asked them to do. And so then what happens? Well, verses 5 through 9, we see the sovereignty. That's the third word that we have before us this morning, 5 through 9. I think this is so fascinating. Twice, verse 5, verse 7, God says, let us go down. Now, what did it say in verse 4? Let us build a tower to the heavens. We're so great, we're going to build a tower to the, to the clouds. And God, when he has to interact with us, in our greatest moments of victory, he has to come down. God is so great that his interaction with us is to come down. There's never an equal footing at all. Let us go down and see what's going on. It reminds me of one of my favorite psalms, uh, Psalm 2. Listen to these words and, and, and think if it doesn't sound exactly like what's happening in Genesis 11. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Kings, rulers, councils getting together and going, we're not going to believe in a God like that. We don't have to worship that God. We don't have to trust in him. We, need to, we, are, we, are bound, we don't want to be bound anymore by this God. And then what is God's response in verse 4? I love this in Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then he says of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, The Lord said to me, You are my son today, I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance <laughs> God says no 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 I'm going to come down I'm in charge of this and when nations and governments what's going on in China right now our brothers and sisters in China are being thrown into prison at alarming rates a kind of persecution we haven't seen in China since the 40s and you know what God is unmoved God has not lost control in China. God is coming down to see and he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish in China. God is unmoved by North Korea. God is unmoved by any ruler, any nation that shakes, that, that says, oh, we need to burst our bonds from God. No, God God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all the nations and he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And in these moments, what does he accomplish? He says, you know what? You didn't disperse like I wanted you to do. I'm going 
I'm going to take your lingua franca, I'm going to take your one language, and I'm going to pull it away from you. Because instead of it being a blessing, it has become for you something that you've misused. You've misused this blessing of one language, and I'm taking it away. And now you're going to be dispersed because you can't even understand each other. You, have you experienced this when you've been on a mission trip or even just a friend that's across the city that speaks a different language? I have a dear friend of mine who is the pastor uh, of a Hispanic church um, uh, over here. And, uh, and when we get together, it's so humbling that we can't actually speak to each other. That we have to rely on an interpreter to, to talk to each other. Um, there's something deeply humbling about that. God humbles them in this. Let me just say, too, there's, there's foreshadowing of what God intends at the very end. Because what happens on the day of Pentecost? There's all these people that can't understand because they speak different languages. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes. And they can speak in all the languages. So that the gospel goes out in one sense, in one language. And God's redeeming it. Well, the foreshadowing takes place here, and we'll wrap this up in the five minutes that we have left. I don't want you to miss this. In verses 10 through 26, we see the trail of redemption. The trail of redemption. So we're focusing down now. And why does God give us this? Because over and over again, he's going to say, here's what I intended. Here's your rebellion. But you know what? I'm going to redeem you. Now, why is this a trail of redemption? Because it goes through the line of Shem, through Arpashad, through Eber, the Hebrews, and then gets us to Abraham. And the rest of Genesis is about this thread, about this trace, about this trail of redemption. And God's showing us this. God's showing it's my intention. It's always been my intention. It's like what we talked about a few weeks ago, or several weeks ago. When we were talking about the fact that, you know, there were everybody, everybody's intentions of their whole heart was evil. And God says, I need to destroy the earth. And then in, in chapter 6, it said, but Noah. Remember that? It was like this interjection. Like we're going headlong off, the, off, the, off a cliff. And God says, but Noah. Or last week, chapter 8, it says, but the Lord remembered Noah. Like the Lord interjects it, and the Lord's interjecting here because he's like, this is happening, but I'm going to take us to Abraham. Brothers, there's one other place where these names are listed, and we'll close with this. You turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. There's listed, probably titled in your Bible, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And if you look down, if you look down in verses 34 through 36, you're going to see the very names that you see in Genesis 11. The exact names. You're going to see Terah, Nahor, Sarag, Rehu, Peleg, Eber, Shelah, Arpashad, Shem, Noah. You know what God's reminding His people at this time in the gospel? There in Genesis chapter 11. And you know what God is reminding us today? It has always been His intention to save you. It has always been His intention to redeem you. The very, the very line of the Savior, Jesus Christ, is spoken about in Genesis 11. 
name upon name, the trace and trail of yours and my redemption was established thousands and thousands of years ago. And we know from Ephesians chapter 1 that it was actually established before the creation of the world. Regardless of our rebellion, it has always been God's intention to redeem you. Amen to that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time of study in your word. Thank you, Father, that it is in your word you reveal to us who you are. You also reveal to us who we are. And we understand our brokenness. We understand our sinfulness. And then we see your amazing grace, even here in a genealogy, to understand that the reason you gave us those names is that we might see that trace, that trail, that line of redemption and be assured that you have set your love upon us, that it has been your plan from all of human history to bring us a savior, to save us. Oh, Father, may we live in that reality today. May we, may we go from knowing to being to doing as we move out into our places of work and our conversations and our relationships today. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's men said, amen. amen.